let's do this. And then the, the three-way. 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 Yay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> that around here. Um, what happens right. in the United States to false accusers? Because we've I covered know. it in other jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I wasn't here for all of these episodes, but, but Shame we, on there you. has been. I know. <laughs> Hope you've watched uh, them, at least. Yes, I do. I do. I do. But um, we've talked about false accusations in Canada and in the UK. You guys talked about it. And so we, we were discussing, uh, addressing, and I, I know we have a lot of people that watch from the US. So false accusations in the US. And well, there's some high profile cases that I wanted to bring up that are kind of interesting. And our focus wasn't just the accusations, but the consequences for those who make them. That was right. kind of our... Because that's one of the big things that we hear all the time right. is just be like, especially once people have been acquitted, they go, what well, happens what happens to, to her? Yeah, what happens to her or him? Usually a her. Usually a her, but, yeah. Uh, and the, the usual answer is nothing. And, but, there, but there are some high profile cases, less so in Canada, but in, in the US there have been a few, and these date back a while. There's some, and I just want to look at some that are really, really well known, because uh, there's a fair bit of information, and, and I did it. As I was looking back at the at the script for this video, I did do a, a really funny video about one of them, and her name. These names are all published. Uh, her name's Nikki Yavino. She was, uh, she made an allegation against two football players, and the police in that case went and there were witnesses, and so they went back and started asking some difficult questions, and uh, and so then Miss Yavino she ended up confessing to making a false accusation. So then she was prosecuted. Yeah, I'm just gonna say one thing. Which fits with the theme that we've discovered before. Pre-charge. Pre-charge. Right. right. Pre-charge. And the importance of investigations. Like, I, I can't say this more. The times where there has been consequences Post. for false accusation is pre the, the person being charged with the sex assault. Right. Post-complaint. It's that time frame. That's and you only get that when there's at least some investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, too, and we've talked about motives that people give when they confess to making a false accusation. And in this case, she said that she was, you know, interested in this uh, third party individual and she was afraid that he was going to hear about her shenanigans. And um, but also making a claim of having been raped, she was thinking that would draw out sympathy in this particular individual. And so I called it I, I was sure I've used this phrase on this show before, but I called it Captain save -a uh, and this is like a complex that some guys have, and and so sometimes <laughs> That's a good they, one. they they hear that somebody's you know been abused in the past, and so then the the, the protector in because men have this natural protective urge, and women t seem to know this. So sometimes by saying, "Oh, I've been victimized in the past," and this essentially is what she was said she w was going on in, in her particular case. Save a hope. And it, so she ended up you know pleading guilty. There was some stuff in the news about how when uh, the victims of her false accusation gave their victim impact statements, which they were able to do, that she was rolling her eyes and things like that. But um, to make it more interesting... No mental health issues there. To, to make it more interesting, though, um, she has since claimed that she made a false confession. So that, yeah. And one of the things that I've tried to point out, too, in terms of what happens to her is once somebody's accused of making... A false accusation, then the burden of proof and the presumption of innocence shifts to, to their benefit. As and it so, should, right. Yeah. And so it had to be proven. And in this case, she ended up pleading guilty. But now she's saying, and we know this does happen with all kinds of accused people, that people can give false confessions. And that's what she's saying happened now. Only in the U.S. Yeah. She's probably got a book deal. 
Mm-hmm. Well, there was a I, there was a, I think a BBC documentary about it where she was one of the featured cases. But um, look, false confessions are real. They uh, happen in yeah. Canada and the United States. But this is a unique circumstance. False confessions typically happen when somebody's being investigated for a criminal offense like homicide. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot of pressure bought, brought to bear on an accused through a very skilled interrogation by a skilled police officer or a series of police officers over a long period of time. And that can lead to a false confession for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. This is factually a little different. Just a bit. Well, in this case, yeah, it wasn't just the confession. There was a lot of the reason that they approached her is because there were witnesses and there was a lot of, there was like a text message involved. There was, there was secondary evidence, like you, whether it be circumstantial or whatever, but you know, the, the, there was more than just a confession involved in, in this particular case. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting case in terms of uh, in terms of somebody that was like a high-profile case in the U.S. Then there's lots of information. There's a Wikipedia page about it, and um, you know, and I really liked that. You know, the the victim impact statements of the young men were kind of featured in the news reports as well because people don't really think about that. The the serious effects, even though they ended up not being charged, the impact it had on them and in, in their lives and the, the trauma that they endured because of it. How was it received publicly? Because, because you know, it's funny. There was a, about two weeks ago, there was one of our cases came up factually uh, on social media or something. And some of the comments was, this is something you're proud of. It's disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself for defending criminals. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious when you had, I'm kind of used to that. It's kind of fun, but uh, I'm kidding. Um, He's not. How, how was... How dare you help people exercise their exactly. right to a fair trial? Yeah, yeah, like, like it was, it was, you know, I most of the time now, like two, three years ago, I couldn't resist but getting into the fight, and and my Marcy, my wife goes, "Are you getting into another online fight online with somebody?" Fight. And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." This is why I stopped social media for a while. But like, <laughs> but this one I didn't ignore, and I said, "I don't want to live in the country you want to live in, where every accusation is presumed I like how uh, you're is presumed to be." Yeah, truthful, and people automatically go to jail, and I don't want to be in that country, and I suspect we're going to get there if Pierre Polia is elected. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not saying that. No, no. they won't f*** up criminal law even more than the liberals. Leaving that aside, um, what I'm curious about, I am concerned, by the way, yeah. about where we're going to go in this country when it comes to criminal law. Can I just segue for one okay, second? You've been itching all day to segue this. I'm concerned because the liberals had f***ed up the criminal law brief so badly and have have caused quite injustices. I'm concerned if a conservative government comes in with the same type of Harper-esque, and I liked Harper, um, amendments that will ultimately get struck down, stricter bail terms. And, you know, we have a mayoral race now going on where two or three are talking about being tough on crime only to get, you know, public opinion uh, in their favor and to get votes, which all always disturb me because it's all it's all smoke and mirrors. So I'm curious in the United States when when these poor young men gave their victim impact statements, how was that received in the media? Like were people going, ah, f- them, that's not true. You know, they probably did it. Um, no, you know, I, I think that there was a general, especially with the the confession that she had made, there was a there was a strong 
um, repulsion at, at that act. And, you know, of course, it's, it's important to note that for real victims of such crimes, that it's, it, it undermines, mm-hmm. uh, and it's insulting to the real victims when somebody does lie about those things. So I, I think that there was a fair bit of support for them and um, that uh, there was the appropriate <clears throat> response to, to her admission of, of what she'd done, even though she's now retracting it. For the book deal. <laughs> for the yeah, <clears throat> so and but there have been some other high-profile p- cases that have taken place there, and one of the interesting ones was is the Duke Lacrosse case yeah. that took place quite a while ago now, but in that case the the complainant are we on number two on our whiteboard? Yeah, my understanding is that she wasn't charged. Um, some other events took place, and she ended up going to jail for a different crime later on, but um, but in that case. It was one of the. It was the only case that I'm aware of in which the prosecutor was um, ended up having to to go to jail for misconduct, and he was disbarred. And so the original prosecutor, the one who took over, was the one who initiated um, you know complaints about him. But it's uh, that's an that, extreme case. That that that's was pretty extreme, extreme yeah. and it's it's really interesting to look at how that went down, and um, and they did a really good job in terms of you know, prosecuting it properly and, and recognizing, you know, what the, the errors were and, and, and things like that. But um, but again, my understanding is that this individual was not prosecuted. Uh, her, her For name, that purpose. Yeah, yeah, you can look up Duke Lacrosse, uh, you know, false accusations and, and it's a pretty in-depth story. But these these cases are so important because it, it's, it draws attention to the reality of how these things can happen. And, and do happen. And do happen. Do happen. In fact. And unfortunately, usually after something like that comes into place, and then there's more tension on false accusations, then some other big story will come out that just basically says we must hashtag believe. So, right. Right. so I, I try not to get too excited when we have these high-profile cases. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I got to say, the U.S. has been fairly good in terms of taking it seriously, and and people do get prosecuted there, uh, which you know, you guys found a few cases in Canada, but you know, they're very it's, rare. It's, it's very, very rare. Very rare. Like Michael had to dig and dig and dig yeah. to try and find these cases. And you know, again, I'll just say this. In the last you know few years, we've litigated quite a few sexual assault cases. And by and large, we found the Crown attorneys to be fair, open, and thoughtful, and inviting discussion where we felt there was evidence uh, a case shouldn't go ahead. And one of them fought very hard a couple of years ago to get the charges withdrawn. So I think there's been a really good equilibrium. I know people who watch our show are skeptical about about that, but we've seen high-level professionalism. That said, it keeps coming back to the same issue I have all the time, is that there is no investigation. That the investigation is taking a statement and that's generally it, or trying to interview one or two people who will support the complainant's version of events, whether it's a disclosure witness or someone of that nature, that's it. And exculpatory evidence can be easily lost because of the failure to investigate, because police can get access to videos if there's that's a right. public location involved, whereas the surveillance videos. An accused person, by the time you can get any, We can't get it. By the, you know, it's, it's already erased and it's gone. So investigation especially where there's where there's a possibility of finding evidence they, they should approach it neutrally and, and the problem is that they're really just interested overall 
and and I think directed because I hear from police officers as they're well. They're directed. They're directed yeah. to only look for things that can support the allegation. Yeah, they've got their checklist, three things. But yeah. but but this is really, you know, so we've had a number of episodes on this. We've looked at a number of jurisdictions. But again, we've seen that that there is only recourse and consequence for a false accusation where it comes out pre-charge, mm-hmm. where the person confesses to having made the false accusation. There is nothing, nothing done after a person is acquitted or charges withdrawn where it is fairly significant um, in the determination which was made to pull the charge or, or for the acquittal. And there is powerful evidence, or if I can use the term we used in an episode before about motive, you know, a strong platform in which yeah, to, it's a platform, you know, all right. where there is really solid evidence of that. Nothing. There is just nothing. There's just, it just drifts away. It drifts away. There's nothing. It's, you know, and it's not going to change ever. I know. And a lot of the studies about the percentage of false accusations, um, which I always hate talking about numbers, a lot of those come out of the States. So it's kind of interesting too, because Mm -hmm. to qualify as a false accusation, uh, in most studies, it requires the person to confess, which is very yeah, good luck. rare. But very rare. We mentioned, um, you know, Nikki Yavino saying that she gave a false uh, confession to having made a false accusation. There's another high-profile case, which is, and uh, which I think is fairly important. The accused person, his name is Brian Banks. He's told his story a lot. He's also you can look him up on on Wikipedia. So uh, the complainant in that case. Um, Eventually, it came out that it was a false accusation, but he had pled guilty uh, when he was charged because that seemed to be his his only option. And then evidence came out to exonerate him. So he's managed to clear his name. He was a rising football star, and and a football team actually let him play on on the team to try and help him, you know, get back to where he was and and so on. But but that's a, another really interesting case to look at, and and it's important to realize that just because somebody pleads guilty to something that they can do that for a number of reasons for one because especially in the states but in the, the sentences states. the sentences are so extreme that the people just get scared and of they course. can get a they can get a plea deal and the US system I may get criticized but I think is is significantly designed to crush an accused it's a warehouse system but let's talk let's forget like leaving aside the sentencing uh, and where they go it, it it's designed to crush. I mean, the predominance of conviction rates, uh, what I mean is the the high rate of conviction rates in the United States is extremely significant. It's very high. Mm -hmm. Sentences that people face are incredibly long. And the trial process, the trial process is very, very challenging, especially if you can't afford a really, really, really good lawyer. They do have some good public defenders though, down there. I've encountered a few cases with really Matter, good public but defenders. It's not well, a rehabilitative we're not, system. We're not, yeah. we're not um, you know, saying that there are not good public defenders, but they're overloaded. Yeah. I mean, they carry you can't get massive, the quality. they yeah. carry massive file loads in the United States. And in Canada, we're seeing an absolute erosion uh, of legal aid and the ability for lawyers to take I'm on. I'm always shocked when somebody through Lighthouse says that they got legal aid, I'm always shocked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're going to see this play out more now, but there's chronic underfunding of many services in Ontario, period. You know, try and find a doctor, try and get, you know, all sorts of stuff. But, but the legal aid system now in Ontario 
like other jurisdictions in, in Canada and in, in the UK, is in crisis mode. And the rates have not gone up significantly at all. Sorry, they've gone up insignificantly. And it is uh, pushing out those who would be senior experienced lawyers from taking one, two, or 20 legal aid files in the practice to to assist people because essentially it, it amounts to pretty close to pro bono work with no time to really investigate a file. Or training grounds for new lawyers. They'll take on these cases, right? It used to be yeah. where you could take on certain cases and, and then use it as mentoring lawyers and, 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 and the younger ones. And we would always have as part of our practice this desire to do legal aid to assist. Um, and we still do pro bono work. But the problem is it's so cumbersome to bill. They don't want to pay you what you bill. And the billing tariffs are so low that it is eroding the defense bar and the ability of people to get a defense. And so although it's crushing in the United States, it's going to be getting more chronic here because I think there still is a high rate of unrepresented accused. They don't get legal aid. They can't afford a lawyer. They get legal aid. It's not really well funded. It's, it's difficult. And we go down the road still where so many of these cases, there's such minimal investigation, people may wind up just giving up and pleading guilty because what's the choice? They can't afford it. They can't get a good defense. If I don't resolve it, I could get maybe four or five years. This way I'll get two years. Or they're pleading to lesser charges. That's waved in front of them. Well, I mentioned how a lot of the studies regarding percentages of false accusations um, and why I don't like this. A lot of them come from the states and academics from the states. And I know you printed out something about false accusations too, just to kind of segue into... I missed my segue opportunity though, so... <laughs> well, it's because I kept talking because about... Because you kept the, talking about football players, but that's okay. I know, I know. So, so you've got something on... And, and we've kind of talked about motives behind false right. accusations before. And I've got uh, the list. And here you go. So here's oh, your Oh, can we have this list? Yeah. So... See, now I get my segue. Mm -hmm. So ba this, this list is basically about the two types of false allegation cases that are prominent in the States and here. So two types, false allegations, which are accusations arising from false memories. We went through that many times and it's coming back. And false allegations- It is coming back. It is coming back. We've, we've attacked it in a couple of cases, yeah. And false allegation cases stemming from a person intentionally making inaccurate or false allegations. So, you know, and, and what are the common motives they have on this top 10 Dave Letterman list? Revenge, money, to create an alibi, to express regret, I don't get that one, to generate sympathy, you've talked yeah. about that one, to draw attention, we've talked about that and, one. And, and those are so undervalued in our system. Right. Not one person will ever think, why would that person or right. that 14, 15-year-old make an allegation because they, were, they had to have been sexually assaulted? Maybe they just needed attention. Right. Like, it's just so undervalued, yeah, rewards, but it's so real. People yeah. always say, oh, they're not making any money, but there's different kinds of rewards that you can get. Of course. Some of them are emotional. 100%. Even a negative response is why but sometimes people do things. But alibi is the top reason. Though. Okay, go well, ahead. No, Sorry. No, there's four more on the top ten list, although I think it's more alibi than Alibi is the number one, though, according to the Dutch study. To yeah. express anger. We've seen that. Yeah. To deny a consensual sexual encounter. We've seen that. Yeah. 
Mental instability, number one on the list in many cases. And how do you prove that? Exactly. And my favorite, my favorite of all time, to gain leverage in a custody or divorce proceeding. Well, that we see all the time. That's I mean, that's like just top. That's just number rampant. two or three nowadays. Yeah. But there are lots of reasons, and we've talked about this before too, is that every time you, you know, you're asked, first of all, by advocates for sexual assault survivors, they'll say, why would somebody lie? There's never a benefit. And then as soon as you give an answer why somebody has lied about it, even when the person's admitted, they say, that's a rape myth. Yeah, yeah. That it's always like some sort of fallacy about, you know, what victims do. And I was like, I'm sorry, you can't talk about what a real victim would do or would not do, mm -hmm. right? Either side of it because people are people and people have their own motives, sometimes of which they don't even understand. Right? But, but alibi is the top reason and, and that comes in many forms. It can be that they need to explain where they were some night or why they weren't where they were supposed to be or because they're failing an exam. So they need an excuse to get out of some trouble that is, is going to occur for them. And you, you know, that's you the know, top reason. You know, the argument in the past that we've met that you know, as part of a defense an accused would say, I would never engage in such high risk behavior Similarly, why would a complainant engage in such high-risk behavior of making a false allegation, right? You know, it's, it, it's such stupidity because we don't understand or we are just not willing to accept that we lack sufficient knowledge of people's emotional and psychological makeup to make such immense decisions about people's lives. In some cases, it's much more apparent than others. But in some cases, it may be quite elusive. And we have to be careful and be really on guard to, to not overly accept somebody's sanity or stability and just ignore why people may just say shit for attention or sympathy or some other need. And they'll go through this. And, 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 and that's why I worry so much about, you know, this 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 um you know convergence of problems that we have between funding of defenses access to access to justice um you know still we're living with this hashtag believe issue and you know limited investigations if not no investigation and you know god we've said this before there really needs to be academic research and we've somebody's reached out to us we have to try and see what we can do about that some it's time right, that yes, statistics yes. we have to do that we were sidetracked with two heavy cases but we have to reach back out and work on it because there has it's time now to take transcripts to take judgments start doing a you know a rigorous uh study of these and look at and make determinations so that we have a we have some data to draw on so we can try and let you know do you remember one of the reasons that uh, we were told that there isn't a lot of academic studies because they're they're not given grant money when they're none zero when they're looking at right. that side of the argument they only get grant money when they're looking to um, to demonize you know and and to increase convictions so which is why we started talking about you know it's about time uh, you know to create some sort of an organization where we're where we're dealing with this and we can maybe get some funding for it because it's about time I mean sounds like a hashtag it's about time. It's about time. I like that. <laughs> Write that one down, Max. And, um, Hashtag, it's about time. But it, it is. I mean, if you just look at our past five years, it is statistically significant the number of transcripts we can point to where any reasonable human being objectively would read the examination and then the cross-examination. No, they're lying. 
That's absolute bullshit. Statistically significant. Mm -hmm. um, but um, looking at the U.S., so like, because I, I have this nonprofit, I, I have helped with a, a number of people down in the states, and I will say there was one individual, young man. I, I wrote about it in uh, an online magazine called Quillette, but he, uh, you know, had been falsely accused by somebody who was essentially stalking him after he broke up with her. Mm -hmm. We were able to repackage before he was charged repackage all of the videos and the evidence that was being presented to show how she admitted that she knew that he was afraid of her and that she was essentially the one who was who was the problem and she she ultimately ended up pleading guilty to making a false accusation so that was i was you know that was really pleasing in terms of outcomes and and i i don't really feel that i could have accomplished the same thing in canada to tell you the truth I thought I thought that the U.S. was a little bit more progressive in terms of looking into that, and uh, but then it's also kind of terrifying too. Like there was one guy, he was an accusation was made. He was leaving town, going on a hiking trail, got a call right at the edge of the reception zone, and they said, "No, no, you're okay to go." He left and went to another state, and then he got hauled out of that state from a laundromat, shipped back to a state, and then he was incarcerated for a long time before he could get bail. In a, in a place that he wasn't, he didn't even live there. And it's, that kind of stuff happens too. And, and you know, that can happen in Canada. You can be shipped from one province to another, but, but it's just. Yeah, although, you know, our bail system's in disarray right now, but it, it's still, it's, we still are able to deal with, you know, some of these cases on a, on a more humane basis in order to get a release order. But it's all the other shit that happens once somebody's charged. We've spoken about it a number of times. The damage already starts from there. Yeah. And, and ultimately, they ended up withdrawing the charges. And I, I think I mentioned this one before because it was kind of shocking. They offered him uh, to plead guilty to a lesser charge, but still a very serious one. And, you know, and I said, I can't tell you what to do. It's up to you and what you're okay with. And uh, so he was just like, I can't do it. The very next day, they withdrew the charges after trying to get him to plead guilty. They knew they weren't going to prosecute. Imagine that. You know, I think, you know, sort of the conclusion here for, for this podcast in conjunction with other ones that we've done now is that taking seriously uh, a false accusation or a demonstrably false accusation is something that, you know, is a rarity. You know, the United States might be a little bit more ahead of the game on it. But when we've looked at other jurisdictions, including the United States, UK, Canada, um, the the chances of dealing with it are slim to none uh, after a trial when somebody's acquitted or charges are withdrawn, regardless of how cogent the defense evidence is to establish a fabrication. And the only time it may happen is pre-charge where somebody confesses that they've made yeah. a false accusation. It's the most likely. That's it. Yeah. But I will give the U.S. credit for this. If you're acquitted in the U.S., you don't get tried again. It's funny we had we had a con on a live chat <laughs> with the other one. I got to I got to hand it to them on that one. <laughs> one of our U.S. Uh, um, viewers was saying, "I still can't wrap my head around how you can appeal in a uh, you know a finding of not guilty." And I said, "Yeah, well, there's slim grounds. You know, there's very defined grounds to do it in. That's for another episode." But well, but they're yeah, expanding you can. it with so-called rape myths now, but. Well, but you know what? Had that not occurred, frankly, if we didn't have that in our system, we wouldn't get some of the the appellate decisions that have actually helped. But I get that, and you know, there there needs to be some finality, and you can't get it if you get an acquittal. You can go all the way up to Supreme Court of Canada. Well, Anyways, I think we've closed the loop now on what happens to false and, accusers. And we have cheers, a new hashtag. Cheers to the U.S.'s double jeopardy ban. <laughs> and our new hashtag.
Good night. If you like this episode, please like, share, subscribe, hit notification. Keep sending us messages, and thank you very much Leave for your comments. support. Good night. Good Cheers. night.